0: This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm joined, as always, by the Libertarian, Professor Richard Epstein. Here at Hoover, Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law over at NYU, and he's a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Now, Richard, there's a free speech story that caught my eye, and I think there's a conversation to be had about censorship and protests at the university level I want to ask you about. Now, the short of it is that Kansas Supreme Court Justice Caleb Stegall wrote a public letter to the University of Kansas Law School and ended his teaching relationship over a recent controversy involving a speaker at a Federalist Society event. Now, the speaker uh, that was invited and actually ended up speaking is affiliated with the Alliance Defending Freedom. It's a conservative Christian group that is in addition to other issues against same-sex marriage. When the event was announced, the student body called for well, many people in the student body called for the event to be canceled. Um, and in his letter, Justice Stegall notes that or says that the administration at KU met with the Federal Society and pressured them to cancel the event. Now, the event actually happened, and the speaker discussed Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. It's a case that was decided in June of this year, six to three. So, before we get into the KU Law School's reaction um, and well, calls for, you know, uh, 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 canceling this event. Can you take us through that case that Kennedy versus Bremerton School District to see how, I want to get a picture of how egregious the talk could have been?
1: Well, I mean, the topic here is one that is generally divided and vexed large numbers of people. Uh, uh, we've had multiple discussions of this at NYU and at Chicago. I, written about it on the Hoover website. Essentially, it's a question of what's the interaction between public-private activity. Uh, What we did is we had a coach in the Bremerton School District who uh, used to lead his students in prayer, and many of them very much thought it was appropriate. It also turned out that this particular activity was admired by many people elsewhere, and that he was something of a Pied Piper, and if he would do the prayer On the football field after the game, people from the opposition team, uh, people from the public audience would come and join him. And the question that one had to ask is whether or not if you're on school property engaged in this kind of activity, is this to be seen as an endorsement of religion in violation of the Establishment Clause um, uh, because of the way in which the place and the setting dictate uh, the understanding of the event? Uh, they came to the attention of the school district uh, when several people wrote a nice letter to them saying how wonderful it was that coach Kennedy was engaged in these sorts of activities and then the school board decided look I mean this is a real dangerous kind of entanglement Um, and and so what they said is we're afraid that we're going to be held liable under the establishment clause if you continue to do these activities that argument struck me as being completely preposterous that there would be some kind of a tort liability, but there's no question that somebody else with opposite views could try to attack it. And so what they then did is entered into a series of negotiations where he would no longer do this in public, Uh, he would try to separate himself from the rest of the stadium, And uh, the activities continue. There was a huge factual dispute that was never resolved on the appeal about the extent to which he was engaged in leading an organized activity or the extent to which it was simply an expression of his own emotions. Uh, When you get a very incomplete and disputed factual record, you always have trouble. Many a person has observed that uh, Justice Gorsuch who essentially upheld his free exercise right um, uh looked at the world one way and Justice Sotomayor taking supplemental views on the same thing, looking at it from the opposite direction. People used to say it were two completely different cases and that the issue is which one goes. And one of the ways in which you could read this is to say what Justice Gorsuch did was protect this guy when he acted as a lone individual. And if the facts were as Justice Sotomayor said, then in future cases, uh, there would be an establishment clause issue at stake, which would justify the dismissal or at least a limitation on what the professor did. This thing is an absolute briar patch. It also raised a famous doctrinal issue about what are the appropriate standards that we use under the Establishment Clause in which to evaluate these kinds of cases. There's a famous decision from 1971 called Lemon and Kurtzman, which has been widely attacked and fiercely defended. On the question about whether or not, if you engage in some activity which has an entanglement between church and state, uh, that essentially disqualifies the activity from taking place, there have been many, many decisions on it. There have been many efforts to back and forth on this particular question, and so what happens is this is the perfect topic for a debate. And if the you know alliance defending religion, in fact, had taken a position, I think it did in this particular case, there would be a perfectly appropriate thing to do. Now, the objection to it wasn't about this debated stuff. The objection was the characterization of this organization as a hate group by other groups. And, of course, I I mean, I think it's an extremely dubious practice for one group uh, to label its political opponents a hate group. And what happened is then the students started to say, well, if these people come onto campus, um, it's going to shatter my life because they want to result in the extinction of transgender students and a lot of other very extreme positions, none of which were the subject of the debate. And so I, I think what was going on here was that if you have a group that takes positions which are, are very strongly pro-religious, on um, their a Christian evangelical group, on many issues, I actually agree with them, I will say that. I think all of the recent decisions, for example, that have said that, you know, we can force you to uh, take photographs and to cater a wedding. Um, if you're a fundamentalist Christian, for people who fundamentally disagree with your points of view, I think that they are right when they start to defend that. And so what happens is by bringing in extraneous situations, bringing pressure to bear, it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to have a freeze debate. And what the uh, Uh, the judge said, Siegel said, is I don't want to be associated with an institution uh, that essentially has institutional pressures on one side and and a paper-thin commitment to freedom of speech on the other time, which is not backed by any kind of similar institutional arrangement. So, I mean, it's a pretty vivid kind of compromise. Fortunately, things like this do not happen that often. But on the other hand, it certainly is something which has seen an uptick. And the number of people who are willing to defend the action of what was done by the KU faculty is too large for my views. I think it's very clear uh, that the federal Society should be able to invite whom it wants. And those people who don't like can attend the event and ask questions. They can hold rival events and so forth. But I think it's one thing to say that we want to disagree with something and quite another thing to say we're going to try to shut you down.
0: Can I get into, I want to get in at some limits of of speech, especially in a university, right? So the Kennedy case is at a high school, (laughs) and that has different standards that have been established. And at universities, it's been much more, I guess, free speech. But for example, professors have more leeway to to say things that perhaps um, at the high school or K through 12 level that they wouldn't. But we're not talking about a professor speaking, we're talking about we are talking about a student organization, but it's not a student organization uh, speaking itself. It is bringing in an outside speaker. I'm wondering if there are any limits to who is should, who can be allowed um, to be, you know, to come on campus and and give a talk at a public university.
1: Well, I mean, I'm not aware of any that I would seriously want to defend. The customary one that is given is you're not allowed to bring on campus people who try to incite for violence or to otherwise demand that students commit immediately unlawful acts. And so, I mean, you certainly could keep off of campus somebody who came up there who wanted to give a rousy, rabble-rousing speech saying, I think it's a time that we wreck the classrooms and something like that. Uh, so if you have speeches that threaten illegal activities, the use of force, uh, then by all means you can stop them. But having a debate over the Bremerton case, which has so many ins and outs, uh, doesn't come within a country mile of that. That issue, And in fact, one of the reasons why it's such an appropriate topic for discussion is it's not just a simple yes, no, up, down kind of situation. There are variations within variations on the case, and the more people who can say about it, uh, the better. So I think there may well be some limits, but I don't think they're even tested, even even relevant in this particular case, what it is is there a very dangerous tendency now in, in, in all situations to make the following proposition. I may limit your right to speak on something of public interest and concern because what happens is I feel threatened and offended by the way in which you speak. And so what people do is they give given an incentive to make it feel as though they're absolutely miserable. They're in fear of their lives. And what they do that, then they say, this is sort of like an assault. And, and the answer to that particular question is, is you're not allowed to magnify your own objection in an effort to suppress the speech of somebody else. Because then otherwise, a religious student can come on and say, here are these atheists coming on campus. I think they're after me. I am in fear of my wife. And what we have to do is to make sure that they are not going going to speech. Uh, What happens is the moment you start allowing offense of that sort to become a relevant consideration, you have to become viewpoint selective. It's only the good guys right, who are allowed to raise these things, the bad guys where they have to learn to grin and bear it. Uh, The correct First Amendment piece is as follows. There's a huge differentiation between defamation on the one hand and offense on the other. Uh, Defamation is a situation where you make a false statement about the plaintiff to a third person, which essentially causes some kind of economic or social dislocation. So if you say to a third person that the plaintiff has committed adultery and that third person happens to be the spouse, you can easily wreck a marriage. And you're not allowed to make false statements like that. And it's well within the uh, libertarian tradition. But if you're just taking offense, there's nothing false that's being stated. You get madder and madder, and you claim the madder that you get, the more you have a right to organize and to control the lives of others. Uh, So there was a case called Johnson against Texas, I think it was, involving the question of whether or not somebody could burn the flag. And it turns out if you're burning my copy of the flag, it's a form of property destruction you could be held accountable. So you burn your own flag. And then there are other people who say, I am deeply offended about how this person has no respect for the tradition of the United States and the freedom for which it stands. And well, I think the answer is they don't. But that doesn't mean that you can start to stop them. And so the general rule under the First Amendment has been uh, you cannot stop somebody from saying what he or she believes simply by taking deep offense of what's going on. And what's at stake when you start looking at the Kansas situation is that. What makes it even more difficult is you know, exactly what this group believes. I think something that could be checked. But what they're doing is they're making very extreme statements about what they say, but they're not quoting anything from their website or anything from their current litigation, which sort of supports those statements. And so, in effect, one of the things you're worried about as to whether or not the critics of these groups are, in fact, engaged in a form of defamation of their own. Now, the event did go on, and there is no reason why it shouldn't go on. And I dare say all the students who were opposed to what happened managed to live through the event. And I think what has to happen is every one of us in an age of increased polarization has to be prepared to live in a world in which people say things that they find deeply offensive. And they're not allowed to shut them down. They're allowed not to listen. They're allowed to mount rival speech. So if the KU students have said, we We'd like to have our own event about Bremerton, and we don't want to invite anybody from the Federalist Society. That's perfectly okay. But what they're doing in this particular case, it seems to me, is going over the top whether a judge should sever his connection with a law school because of this kind of a situation. Well, that's a personal judgment. He thinks it's too important and he doesn't want to be around. Other people will say, look, I want to stay and work with this particular institution because I want to make sure that people have my kinds of views are going to be heard here. And if I pull out, then the the whole environment that the school is going to have even more left-wing than it otherwise is. And I think that's a bad thing. And so the question of whether or not to fight within an organization or to resign from that organization is an extremely difficult one. And I'm very reluctant to sort of stay from the outside and tell him, judge, you should have stayed around and Fort, Or if he had stayed, say, judge, you really should have left. I think it's a very, very tough situation. I commend the judge for his Um, courage, and I hope that somebody takes up the discussion and bring him back and try to resolve this sort of thing. I am not a fan of diversity, inclusion, and equity, and so forth, because I tend to think that these are groups that often are extremely solicitous about their own point of view, but I don't think of them as being particularly open to the classical liberal positions that I want to espouse, and I don't like being in a situation where I'm constantly told that I'm there on sufferance, and that everybody else knows what's right. Uh, so when people say, look, um, you're against gay rights and so therefore we can get you out. Well, the claims of gay rights are many and varied, um, And some of them I accept and some of them I probably don't accept, but I certainly don't want to be put into a position where if I disagree with anybody who takes a position having to do with LGBTQ rights and so forth, uh, that the mere fact that I disagree with them is going to put me into a terrible position. I think I'm entitled to express my disagreement. And in fact, you know, my position is, I don't think indefensible, but roughly speaking, I've generally defended gay marriage. But on the other hand, I'm strongly opposed to the use of the anti-discrimination laws uh, to compel anybody who doesn't believe in that situation uh, to either perform a wedding ceremony or to assist in the way in which these things are done. And so I think that's a perfectly defensible position. I think it's the correct position. I would hate to be branded as some kind of a hate group uh, because I cross them on one another issues. They wanna talk about it, we can do so. Uh, But I don't think in effect that simply saying you're anti, what we believe means that you're indefensible is a way in which to win an argument. I think you have to go out there. And the only way I think you could win an argument, interestingly enough, is to go out into a debate we have to take the risk of losing the argument because at that point it becomes a genuine struggle. Otherwise, it's just a kind of a dangerous revival meeting.
0: Last question for you, Richard, and it's I guess it's sort of a two-parter. Um, you, you mentioned um, uh, DEI and the Law School's Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging Committee labeled the speaker a practitioner of hate speech. So two-parter for you, Richard. What actually constitutes hate speech, if anything? and And two, what do you think about the Federal Society um, you know, inviting speakers that they know will not just be controversial, but at this point seem like there have been events at other, other schools, the response is going to be predictable from, from the administration and from other students?
1: I think when you're starting to talk about hate speech, it's a relatively narrow category in which what you do is you address individuals and you announce that you hate them because of some of their characteristics, their race, their age, their sex, their ethnicity, and so forth. And then what you do is you engage in grotesque stereotype generalizations about how all members of that particular group behave in a particular way. I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but Kanji West and this other fellow um, who had dinner with Trump, uh, they seem to me to be doing was engaging in, in hate speech. And I think the appropriate response if somebody like that comes on campus is you just don't show up. Uh, you don't give them the credibility. And I think it's a much more devastating response if they come and nobody answers them than it is to try to shout them down and make them into some kind of a martyr. Now, the question about what the federal society should do, I think in general, it is always a mistake to invite people in order to provoke the bull on uh, one way or another or to get other people upset. But I think it is perfectly respectful to take people in whose views are not fashionable. And I think, in effect, if somebody's on the other side of these issues, it would well behoove them to go and to listen to people whom they disagree with, and then see if they could formulate reasoned responses to the way in which they speak. So there's absolutely nothing whatsoever about what the Federal Society did in making this particular kind of an invitation. Um, uh, this is not the sort of thing that would make me it. I think if other groups want to brand them as hate speech. I think those are the people whom I would not be prepared to invite to campus uh, myself because I think what they're doing is engaging in unnecessarily inflammatory operation. It is not a healthy situation where you have two groups which have fundamental disagreements in which one of them is allowed to pronounce in very sharp terms about the terrible characteristics of another. I regard it as defamation, actually almost defamation per se, while the other group is only allowed to sort of meekly submit to the kinds of statements that are involved. And I think if you run a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, and you know that you're the dominant group on campus, what you have to do is to bend over backwards to make sure that you don't become a totalitarian group, uh, that you become a group that actually recognizes that there are people inside your organization who do not accept everything for which you stand. And indeed, I think it's perfectly appropriate for somebody to say, look, I know I have to abide by policies if they're lawfully enacted by the universities, but my free speech rights and I think my conscience is such then I should be entitled to oppose the kinds of policies which I will obey in the short run. I think unless you are willing to subject established beliefs to some kind of criticism, things will become static. Can you imagine what would have happened at some point when you had some very strong McCarthy-eyed people and somebody says, well, you can't criticize them uh, because they're the dominant faction inside the school. It is all the more important that dominant factions be subject to criticism than fragile and marginal funds because the people who have the power are the ones for whom the counterweight is most needed.
0: You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at hoover.org. If you found our conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church, we'll talk to you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work, or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.